Tumor Talks, a podcast about clinical cases in oncology, and we are your hosts. I'm Dr. Kathy Marshall, a medical oncologist. I'm Dr. Beatrice Wills, a medical oncologist and hematologist. And I'm Dr. Jonah Amata, an internal medicine resident physician. This is Kathy back for um, a session of tumor talks on brain metastases. So I'd like to introduce David Campson today. He's an assistant professor of oncology and neurology at Johns Hopkins and the leader of the brain metastasis program. So welcome, Dr. Campson. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So can you start out by just telling me about the epidemiology of brain metastases? Of course, uh, it is a complicated question with a lot of moving parts, and the data's reliability is not so great from the past four decades. And that's because we've had a lot of changes that happened in diagnostic techniques, new screening programs, longer survival, and uh, new treatment modalities that really altered the diagnosis and the true incidence of the disease. So the exact estimate is unclear, the best and most reliable data that we have is coming from the NCI's Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results or SEER uh, program database. Unfortunately, that only records uh, synchronous brain metastases. So uh, brain metastases that are discovered uh, at the time or at close proximity to the uh, initial cancer diagnosis. So according to the SEER data, uh, 2% of patients have synchronous brain metastases. Uh, in contrast, uh, metachronous metastases, so the ones that develop over the course of cancer, have much less reliable data, but they're estimated to be impacting 20 to 40% of uh, patients with cancer. Uh, there are a lot more, uh, a lot of re more reliable aspects of brain metastasis epidemiology. Uh, those include that brain mets are extremely common, impact at least more than twice as many people as uh, primary brain tumors. And they have a sharply rising incidence after age 40 that plateaus uh, in the sixth or seventh decade of life. And uh, the primary origin of brain metastases uh, is also quite stable with uh, lung uh, followed by breast and melanoma are the most common sources, and they represent more than 50% of brain metastases. And they are followed by other primaries, such as renal cell carcinoma and gastrointestinal uh, metastases. Um, and there are certain sites with extremely low incidence of, of brain mats or CNS mats that includes prostate cancer, for example. Hey, great. Thanks, Dr. Kamsen. This is Beatrice here. And how do patients usually present? What are their mo most common presentation? So it's, it's, it really depends on the situation. Um, I think the simplest way to describe it is to divide it into three more standardized scenarios. Uh, the first scenario is also the most common when you have a patient with a known history of cancer. Uh, and the patient develops neurologic symptoms such as a new headache with red flag signs, seizures, confusion, speech, memory changes, weakness, numbness, double vision, uh, a whole gamut of, of neurologic symptoms. Um, and patients with spinal metastases or spinal cord compression can also present with uh, urinary or fecal retention or pain. 
But it's important to emphasize the red flag symptoms um, that are associated with headaches. And those are a new headache after age 40. So most primary headache disorders present themselves uh, before age 40. So anybody older than that with a new headache is all already suspicious, especially in the context of cancer. And then uh, the additional red flag signs include uh, progressive headaches and intensity as well as in increasing frequent frequency um morning headaches headaches that emerge when someone spends a prolonged period of time supine wake them up at night and of course intractable emesis confusion and, and the associated neurologic deficits uh, are also part of the red flag symptomatology and then these are the patients who are most commonly uh, ending up in the ER and symptomatic lesions usually are large enough to be detected by non-contrast CT. But, but there are still patients who have a relatively normal appearing CT scan. So CT is not enough to screen them. So this is the most common group. And then uh, scenario B is uh, someone who has a metastasis that is discovered during uh, initial staging of their cancer, especially the NCCN guidelines now do recommend uh, brain staging for uh, extensive uh, stage lung cancer, for example. Um, so those are the patients who might be asymptomatic, but but they have uh, asymptomatic uh, brain metastasis found in staging. And then the, the last but most confusing group is the patient who presents with symptoms without a known history of malignancy, but they only represent less than 2% of cases. Got it. And so you mentioned sometimes we see this in the CT scan, a patient presenting with a red flag headache, for example. But besides the head CT, what imaging modalities do you usually recommend? The diagnostic gold standard is brain or spine MRI with and without contrast. And it, it is crucial to use uh, gadolinium contrast because um, without that, brain metastasis can appear as nonspecific gliotic changes or on flare sequences, or they can be missed completely if they're smaller. Um, the contrast extravasation highlights areas where metastases breach the blood-brain barrier and it really helps uh, narrow the differential, especially when there's also concurrent necrosis or there are multiple lesions present. Uh, the most common and most difficult uh, differential is primary brain tumors, but those oftentimes have non-contrast enhancing infiltrating regions, whereas brain metastases cannot infiltrate the brain uh, without breaking down the blood-brain barrier. Um, and as a consequence, most brain metastases enhance contrast, and there are very few, very rare exceptions, which in my experience have been just small cell lung cancer metastases, which in exchange show very remarkable diffusion restriction, uh, which is thought to be due to the high cellularity. So those are not missed still on, on uh, standard uh, MRI. There's another modality when it comes to leptomeningeal carcinomatosis is spinal taps. And the key thing there is to have cytology that is uh, freshly processed and is of at least 10 cc's of volume. 
by definition, these patients are, have metastatic disease, so stage four disease. Do you, how do you think about staging? And is, I guess especially when you when patients are presenting with a brain metastasis um, who don't have a known history of cancer, how do you think about those patients too? So the, uh, the staging approach is very similar. So it's CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis with and without contrast. Uh, some patients w- who have known... Uh, known cancer get an FDG PET, for example. So uh, it is important to emphasize that the FDG is not necessarily that helpful when it comes to the central nervous system because uh, the brain has high uptake and a lot of uh, metastases actually are either too small to be detected on FDG or they're large enough, but they actually are not FDG avid. So uh, the value of of, of PET is limited here. Uh, but when it comes to my field, when we talk about staging, we are talking about staging the spine. So there are a number of patients who might have spinal metastases that are often missed. So when we talk about CNS staging, it usually means adding a complete spinal MRI. And then what about pathology markers specific or relevant for when patients present with uh, brain metastases? Yeah, so uh, the principles of of pathology are very similar to other sites. I think the the most remarkable thing about uh, brain metastases is that a lot of these uh, lesions are already de-differentiated. So pathologists oftentimes rely on the already known uh, primary diagnosis. And uh, the distinction from primary brain tumors usually relies on the detection or the absence of glial markers, such as glial fibrillary acidic protein or GFAP or OLEC2. Got it. And what molecular testing um, is relevant or what biomarkers are useful once you have um, a brain metastasis? So the role of molecular testing is currently being established, and it, it's not entirely clear. What we learned about the biology of the disease is that there's a the branch evolution where the brain metastases are oftentimes uh, poorly represented by the molecular markers found in extra CNS mats. So what is the added value of getting uh, distinct uh, CNS sequencing is a question that is being investigated. There are a number of uh, molecular markers that increase the risk of CNS metastases, and, and those tend to be more stable and persistent uh, throughout the course of cancer. These include uh, EGFR mutations in lung cancer, for example, or HER2 mutation in breast cancer, but also in about 1% to 2% of lung cancer and in upper GI malignancies. The presence of HER2 mutation is actually a marker that significantly increases the risk of brain metastases in in all of these um, primary malignancies. And these mutations are both targetable and tend to remain stable and persist in the brain uh, clone as well, with perhaps the exception of the of the GI cancer group, where in my experience the the HER2 positivity can disappear once targeted. And then there's another very important group of of uh, markers or 
one specific marker, and that is anaplastic lymphoma kinase or ALK, that we can see in, in uh, lung cancer, which is also a CNS uh, predisposition marker. And given the high CNS activity of the drugs with which we can target ALK uh, and the high response rate, this is a unique group of patients where pharmacotherapy can be sufficient to control uh, the CNS disease without radiation. And lastly, can you tell us about uh, who to refer to? I know that uh, patients who have brain metastases, it always requires multidisciplinary care. Um, do you have tips for us on on who to refer to and when? Absolutely. So the key players are, of course, medical oncology, radiation oncology, neurosurgery, and uh, neuro-oncology. Um, and all patients uh, with brain metastases need to be established with medical oncology. So that, that's, that's, that's clear. Um, I have a, kind of a, a, a flow chart as to who to approach, and it's really driven by symptoms and steroids. So let's take a step back and talk about who needs steroids. Um, it's usually patients who have uh, significant mass effect, significant uh, edema in their brain with concurrent neurologic deficits. And these are the patients who should be considered for a neurosurgical intervention as well. Uh, this is where symptoms can be improved and the mass effect can be relieved by a surgical intervention and the steroid requirements can be lowered. One caveat is if uh, Central nervous system lymphoma is on the differential, then um, uh, tissue sampling should be prioritized over steroids if safely uh, doable. And then uh, the first uh, intervention that usually most patients receive is radiation. So radiation oncology consult is always uh, one of the key elements that most patients require. And lastly, the role of neuro-oncology or neurologists is currently being established. Uh, patients who have uncontrolled neurologic uh, issues or patients who had already, already received treatment and have a suspicion of pseudoprogression uh, may benefit from a neuro-oncology evaluation as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Kamsen. I know that I certainly have learned a lot today on brain metastasis, so we appreciate you being here with us today. So to recap, there are twice as many patients who present with brain meds compared to those who present with primary brain tumors. Cases are usually seen after the age of 40 and then drop off after the sixth or seventh decade of life. The origin of brain metastases are usually seen from the lung followed by breast, followed by melanoma, and these comprise about 50% of the cases in total. Patients usually present with red flag neurological symptoms in the setting of a known history of a primary cancer, or METs have been discovered with initial staging, or present with symptoms so that a history of malignancy. Though metastases can be seen on CT imaging, the gold standard is still an MRI brain and spine with and without gadolinium contrast. Staging is important, and complete CNS staging includes a spinal MRI. Our pathologists look at specific markers on pathology, including GFAB or OLIG2. 
and though molecular markers have been debated in terms of their importance, there are some that have been proven to increase the risk of development of brain metastases, and these include EGFR, HER2, and ALK, which are important since they're targetable. Just like for our other solid cancers, a multidisciplinary team is important, including radiation oncology, neurosurgery, neuro-oncology, and of course, medical oncology. Lastly, it is important to mention that steroids should be started for those for whom we have concern of mass effect and edema with the development of neurological changes. In addition, these patients should be considered for surgical intervention. One caveat to mention is for patients for whom we have suspicion of CNS lymphoma, it is more important to obtain tissue sampling than to start steroids. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Tumor Talks. See you next time. A special thanks to Primo for recording and composing our background music. Tumor Talks is an independent podcast that does not represent the institutional views or opinions of our employers, Johns Hopkins Hospital or Memorial Sloan Kettering, or that of our guests.